being okay with sharing and knowing that it's not a weakness, that it's not a failure, that it doesn't mean that you don't have things in order, that it doesn't mean that you're a mess, that it doesn't mean that you don't have it figured out, that it doesn't mean that you need to get your shit together. That's highly decorated freestyle swimmer Caroline Burkle, whose achievements include winning a bronze medal at the 2008 Beijing Summer Olympic Games in the 4x200 freestyle relay. Hi everyone, I'm Olympic snowboarder Gretchen Blyler. Welcome to The Art of Living Extraordinarily, where I dive deep into the stories of those who have had the courage to blaze their own trails. We learn the deeper motives that drive these individuals, how they face fears, the challenges and obstacles they've faced, how they get through them, and the biggest lessons that they've learned along the way to living their dreams. The Olympics are over. Athletes worked a lifetime for their single moment in time. So what happens now that the games have come and gone? For some, they'll take the next four years to prepare for another chance. For others, this was their last opportunity to compete on the world's largest stage, and they may spend the next four years figuring out what's next. A major theme Caroline and I discuss on today's podcast is the topic of transition and the discovery that our identities are so much more than just our profession and the accomplishments we achieve. I met Caroline at a wellness event in the spring of 2014, a time when we were both going through different stages of transition. I had just retired from competitive snowboarding, so I was at the very beginning of a big life change, and she was just finishing up getting her master's in sports psychology, and yet, at the same time, she wasn't exactly sure where it would all take her. Our talk was really meaningful to me because I've obviously gone through and still feel like I'm going through transition in my life. Transition is a phase of life that we will all go through many times, whether we like it or not. And yet, it's almost something we're ashamed to talk about and experience in our society. We place so much attention on what do you do? And all of us at some point in our life feel like we have no idea what the hell we're doing. And I think that's 100% okay. Sometimes we need to just give ourselves some space to hang out in not knowing. We don't always need to have it all figured out, but for some reason we feel like we do. So when we don't, we sweep things under the rug and just try to keep going. A moment I will probably never forget is when I was at an event as a keynote speaker the fall of 2014. My topic was using your platform to do good in the world. This was a topic I had spoken about within my career as a professional snowboarder many times, but now that I had given up competitive snowboarding, I felt super confused around who I was, what I was doing, and where I was going. In other words, I felt like I no longer knew what my platform was, and I literally could not make myself get up on stage and pretend to know. So I did something very out of the ordinary that day. I got up on stage and talked about transition a topic I had not prepared to speak around, but a topic I could speak about from my heart since I was in it. I was open, I was honest, I was very off the cuff. I knew that there were a lot of people in the audience that day who had either been through big transitions in their lives, who were going through big transitions in their lives, or who were about to go through big transitions in their lives. And I wanted to make the point that we should own how we're feeling and what we're going through during these times, instead of brushing it all under the rug, 
because that would be a disservice to ourselves and to all of those who will come after us. And even though transition is a super uncomfortable time in life, it's also a time that should be celebrated and not feared. It's a time where we can reflect and go inward, gather all of our experiences and wisdom that we've acquired along the way, and use it to help light the way for a new path. In our talk, Caroline stresses the importance of sharing, and I could not agree with her more. So besides being an Olympic bronze medalist, Caroline Burkle is also the 2007 Pan American Games gold medalist. She swam for the University of Florida on an athletic scholarship, where she was awarded 2008 NCAA Swimmer of the Year. A two-time national champion, Caroline also broke the oldest standing swimming record in the 500-yard freestyle. After her retirement from competitive swimming in 2010, Caroline went on to receive her master's degree in sports psychology and motor behavior, and she's currently the co-founder of Rise Athletes, a mental training empowerment online platform where athletes are paired up with Olympians. Needless to say, Caroline is talented and has accomplished a lot, but as I alluded to before, it hasn't always been rainbows and unicorns, and she isn't afraid to talk about the struggles behind her success. Actually, as impressive as her accolades are, equally impressive is her fearless approach to sharing the vulnerable aspects of her journey. She's become a professional truth teller, and man, does she have some truth to tell us today. We talk about things like being addicted to pain, the art of learning how to turn it off, depression, and a major takeaway that we couldn't help but continue to come back to was this concept of integrating these seemingly opposing qualities that we all have within us. The badass that knows we can accomplish our dreams and goals. And then the part of us that has a really big heart and feels guilty for having those desires. Because we also just want to make sure that everyone else is happy. Caroline says you don't get very far by only wanting to be one or the other. Last thing I did want to mention is that there is a point in our conversation where Caroline acknowledges abuse that she experienced throughout her career as a swimmer, emotional, verbal, and beyond. It's something she told me she was fine to address within our talk generically, as she would kindly prefer to remain a voice for the movement rather than dive straight into it at this point, as it's something she's currently processing. If you want to learn more about what's going on, you can just Google sexual allegations in USA Swimming, and you'll get an understanding of the mess that's unraveling right now. As horrifying and sad as all of these allegations are in the world of sports, I truly believe it's an exciting time to address issues that have always been right there at the surface. It's programs like Caroline's Rise Athletes that will help sports become a more holistic environment for athletes, where these sorts of stories hopefully will one day be non-existent. But before we get started, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Alex Supply Co. Alex Supply Co. is a company I started with my husband a few years ago. And the main reason we started it is because using healthy and sustainable products is definitely one of those small everyday actions that add up to an extraordinary life. It's the reason you'll always see me walking around with my reusable water bottle. But the problem is that every reusable bottle out there is impossible to clean. Eventually, they fill up with bacteria, they start to stink, it's gross. So with Alex, we fix that by creating the first stainless steel bottle that opens in the middle so you can actually clean it out. I mean, it makes total sense, right? A bottle you can actually clean? It's perfect for water and it's 
actually also incredible for smoothies and other drinks that you can't clean out of other bottles. And because it opens in the middle, it saved me on so many camping trips by becoming two cups to share with a friend or even an impromptu cocktail shaker. The list goes on and on. The name stands for Always Live Extraordinarily, an inspiration and hydration partner while you're pursuing your dreams. We've just released a couple other handy products too, so right now you can get 20% off with code Gretchen, G-R-E-T-C-H-E-N. Head over to alexbottle.com, A-L-E-X-B-O-T-T-L-E.com, and use code Gretchen for 20% off. Now let's listen to Caroline's story, the badass with a good heart. Let's get into sort of your story. How did you even become a swimmer? Um, and then moving into becoming an Olympian and then becoming an Olympic bronze medalist, kind of take us through your story a bit. Yeah. So I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky and my mom is from Northern California. My dad's from Kentucky. So we were the old Louisville Kentuckians for a while. <laughs> I love I, that. I'm from yeah. Ohio, by the way. So we were neighbors. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Midwesterners. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I grew up there and I played tennis and swam and ran cross country and just dabbled in everything as a kid. I was, and I was good at everything and I loved it, but I wasn't the kind of youth athlete that was so obsessed and so intense that I couldn't see past my sport. Like I was just there for the social hour to be totally honest. Like everything was so social for me and that was my happy place. I love that. Yeah. You just make friends and it's like, whatever, you know? Um, and so I got better at swimming faster. So I went with that. I was 13 when I made my first international. Why do you think you got better at swimming faster? Your body? Honestly, I love the water. Yeah. Yeah. And my body type was perfect for it. Yeah. Like wingspans, like six, three. I'm just really lanky and awkward. And I love tennis. I was great at tennis. My mom was a professional tennis player and wishes that we all ended up playing tennis. I didn't know she was a, a professional tennis player. How cool is that? Yeah. Yeah. She And she played just for a bit, but then she actually tore her rotator cuff in three places. So mm-hmm. she, you know, Brutal. she had some grit to her, though. She could really teach us how to handle setbacks and stuff. Yeah. She was awesome. But, of course, she, you know, so she was teaching tennis when we were growing up. So we would always be around her teaching and she would just, you know, she loved it. We would just be those kids in the stroller on the tennis court. So we're always surrounded by sports. Um, my dad was a swimmer and he swam in college and he ran tennis and fitness clubs in Kentucky and opened them, you know, he's entrepreneur and opened a bunch of USTA tennis clubs and all that kind of stuff. So it was really cool. You're from a super duper athletic family, basically. (laughs) Yeah. Basically it was, it was good. It was it was a competitive upbringing, though, and I think I realize that more as I get older. I'm like, oh, you know, but it wasn't a forced competitive upbringing at all. Like my parents were so hands off with us, and so I have two younger brothers. One's 29, turning 30 in like a week, and the other one is 21, turning 21 this year. So he's much younger, and you know, so Clark and I were like basically twins. We're like a little under two years apart. And, uh, so we grew up pretty competitive. He is the total opposite of myself. He is very intense and like sports driven. 
like always wanted to win, always wanted to practice more and more and more and more and more. He was that like token badass kid, you know, like he just did not give a shit and <laughs> just like wanted to win all the time. And I was like, do to do like totally up and up, you know, up in the clouds and missing my races at swim meets and, you know, <laughs> didn't ever know my times or anything. Like I just, I had this ability to turn it on and off easily. And amazing. I, I don't know, you know, this is like where nature and nurture come in. Like, I don't know. I don't know if that was something that just came naturally to me. I still, I do think that that is probably the case. I feel that way still now to this day. Yeah. Um, and it can be a blessing and a curse and I can get into that later, but it is a, it was a great thing. You know, I was able to really enjoy it. And so anyway, fast forward, I made junior nationals at 13 was terrified terrified out of my mind, refused to go, refused to do it, did not want to go to the meet. So I didn't. <laughs> my coach was like, fine, you don't have to, you know, if you're not going to be there. What What just, were you terrified of? Everybody else. Yeah. I was a big, like I was the tiniest. I was little. I was not as big as the other girls. I didn't want to be, I didn't want to train too hard. I was, oh, this is funny. I was always terrified of overtraining. I was terrified of it. It Like, I don't want to lift weights in high school. I don't want to train that much. What were you afraid of getting ripped or like too big or yeah. Yeah. Like body image stuff. Body image terrified of that because I was already a a little muscle child. Like I already looked like a little muscle child. I can pick up a dumbbell and I put on like five pounds of muscle. (laughs) Like that's just the way my body is, is. And so I was terrified of that, but I was really, really terrified of not being good at college. Like I knew I had this ability to just know that I was going to go and kick ass somewhere, but I would never admit it. You know, I was never, I was never going to admit it. I was like the silent killer, just kind of like whatever, you know, you didn't want the pressure. Exactly. You wanted to come in under the radar. Exactly. I loved that feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, you know, I never did anything to really push myself that much. I just had, I just did well. Um, and then I made seniors. I finally went, I was 15. I made it in the hundred breaststroke, which is not even, I mean, it was my best event at the time, but it wasn't the event that I ended up competing in, you know, as I got older or events. Um, and my first nationals was at university of Florida. So it was, and in Gainesville where I ended up going to college, but I was recruited after that meet. I did awful. I literally got dead last, but somehow I guess the coaches saw potential in me and they were like, this girl just needs to get some confidence, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of thing. And so I ended up just, you know, going through the whole college recruiting process and took trips to Texas and Stanford and Cal and Northwestern and, uh, where else did I go? I don't even remember, but Arizona. And I ended up choosing Florida because it felt the most like home to me. And I liked that the men and women trained together. And then I went on a scholarship to Florida for swimming. And that was, you know, a D1 top five NCAA school. So let's just put it this way. It was no easy feat to train there, (laughs) to compete there. It was like gnarly. Right. And my freshman year was like lights out. I have no idea. I mean, probably no expectations obviously. But I went in and of course I started lifting and I started, you know, doing some really different training than what, than what I had done. And it helped a lot. What changed Um, for you? Because before you didn't want to lift and now you're lifting. Honestly, we didn't have a choice. (laughs) You just were for, yeah, it's like, this is what you do. Yeah. It's like, 
you're doing this and here you go, you know? And I, I went into, so I went into college and I like was so ready and I I don't know, Gretchen, it was just like this feeling of get me out of Kentucky. And, and I, there were several different reasons for that, but I think that I, was just so ready to get the hell out of there and to start and to blossom on my own. And I just felt so much disconnect towards the end with my hometown, which was, it was almost, it was hard. It was hard for me because I felt guilty for that, but I just wanted to go and I wanted to get out and, and just get going. (laughs) I, I was ready. And I think that parlayed into a really wonderful mindset for me for swimming because I, in college, because I just didn't give a shit. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like ready to go, you You're know, all I was in. ready to just, yeah, I was all in. It was new. There were new coaches. There were new people. I was ready to go. There were like cool parties. Like it was the first time I'd ever partied. You know, I was just like, this is so cool. Like right. I was just momentum. Momentum was just going and I was in it and I was fully just diving in as if, you know, I didn't give a flying crap about anything. And I think that, you know, obviously I always refer back to that sometimes because I'm like, what did that feel like Right. to just not care and to go into something like, I don't really know what's going to happen and I don't really care, but I'm just going to go anyway and but see what, what goes on. When you say that, I feel like, didn't you care? Like you put in your work, you, you know, you got there from a foundation and so you care like you know where you're going but but then you're also able to it's don't you think it's more of just a you were enjoying yourself yeah I was and I wanted to work for some reason like I wanted to put in the good work it was like I actually wanted something for the first time yeah in my life and I actually wanted something for a different reason than I ever did before. You know, I wanted it because I was a part of a bigger team. I wanted it because it felt really cool to be a part of a team, to be a part of a community. And I wanted it. And, and, you know, thinking back, I wanted it because I felt selfish for the first time. Which is and, such a great thing. Like, you yeah. gotta, but it's not selfish. I think that we always get caught up with that and it's actually owning something that's in you and saying, I'm having that. And we can call it selfish or we can call call it, I'm going to follow what's in my heart because I know this is what I got to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I grew up in a Catholic community. I was raised that way in Catholic grade school. (laughs) Yeah. So you almost feel like you do everything for everything else. And, you know, again, that was just my perception. It's all my perception. And I just couldn't handle it anymore. I was so ready to break free. I'm, you know, I'm my, my mother's daughter. Let's put it that way. You know, she's a California girl, just free spirit. You know, she's the one with the mala beads by her bedside and my dad was the one with the rosary, you know, and it's like, that's just, that was their relationship. And that was, and she of course was so wonderful in, you know, adopting some different mentalities. But, you know, I grew up with my, both of my parents endured very difficult family situations and very big hardships. And so I felt like I owed things maybe growing up a little bit more. And I went to college and I was like, I don't freaking owe anything. Like, here I go. You know, now I'm on my own and I don't owe anybody anything, you know, and I felt this freedom. Yeah. And so I don't, 
I don't know. It's, it's interesting to continue to think back on that because that really framed a lot of the rest of my career that I would go back and forth with that concept of like, I need to be somebody for everybody. And then I don't give a shit about anybody and I'm just going to do my own thing. And that, that those dual opposing forces were, were something that were, that, that, you know, framed a lot of different mindsets for me moving forward. Um, that guilt, but the freedom, Yeah, you know? Yeah. So, and that's a, that's an athlete mindset, I guess, you know? That's, that's really interesting. Cause I'm sure so many people can relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. Of, of having something that you want to do where you could just say, screw everybody, I'm going to do this. But at the same time, feeling responsible and feeling like, well, we're also on this earth to help one another. And where mm-hmm. do you, like, how do you walk that line? That's, and you and I talked about that, the whole one, you have to be one or the other. And I think that I, I grew up thinking that I had to be one thing or the other. Mm-hmm. That if I didn't, and I mean, I just want to preface this with none of, I I don't have any anger towards any of that. It's just an interesting dynamic to me to think about because I loved my world growing up. Like I had the most supportive family. Everything was just, it was great. You know, I'm not going to sit here and bullshit and beat around the bush saying, my God, like try and pick something that made me think this way. I just felt this feeling of, I can't be free, you know, and I don't know where that came from other than the idea that I just had to be one thing or the other. And I couldn't be both. I couldn't be a loyal friend and family member and, and be there for everybody, but then be free and go to Florida. I, you know, I felt guilty leaving the state. Like I felt guilty and then, but I want to be free, but I feel guilty. And it's like, it's okay to feel both. It's okay to go through those emotions and those feelings And it's the same thing with competing, right? Like I had moments when I would feel guilty for doing well. (laughs) I was like, I feel bad. Who did you You feel bad? Did you feel bad like for your friends who you had just beaten? Yeah. Yeah. Like I had moments like that. Like I was that, you know, like going back to my childhood, I didn't want to upset anybody. I was just having fun and I was like, oh, this is so great. But I, I didn't like feeling like I beat people. But then the other side of me was like, yeah, screw it. Right. (laughs) Like I had this like opposing force and I felt bad that I had that, you know, I felt bad for a long time. I was like, I cannot be both. Mm -hmm. I have to just be this in order to succeed. I cannot be both, you know, and you can, like you can, it's okay. And I think so many of us get caught in that. Am I this or am I that? And Mm -hmm. the reality is that we're all of it. And it's learning how to own all of it and integrate it together in a way that is balanced. And I think that is the forever life journey because it's trial and error and it's always changing and it's always evolving. But as soon as we can say, I don't have to choose, like Mm. that's when things start changing. Don't you think? Absolutely. And yeah, you're neither this nor that. Like that's not really the way that the cookie crumbles. You're never going to just be one thing marching around with that stamp on your forehead and like you, that's it. That's all you have to you. You're not there yet. If that's what you think, something's going to get thrown at you. That's going to just rock you to your core. (laughs) Right. And I think that we're told that though. I think we're told we have to be one thing. Right. 
Well, you know, I like love... I was told, you need to be a bitch. You need to be a bitch to compete well. Right. And I, I really like, I don't want to be a bitch. Words. Yeah. And I was like, okay, yeah, definitely. Being a little bit more of a bitch will help for sure. But I can also <laughs> like laugh and give hugs to my teammates and to high five them behind the box and whatever, and still want to kick their ass. It's okay. Yes. It's I okay love, to do both. It uh, doesn't mean you're a bad person. <laughs> amen. And hallelujah to that. Um, yeah. Talk about that post. Cause I love it so much. Your post around being a badass. Oh God. <laughs> it's just so great. Uh, I think yeah. it sums up what we're talking about so well. Yeah, it's true. I feel like, you know, I, that's been kind of my mantra for a long time. Oh, I love that. Is that you can be a badass with the biggest heart. And I think everybody can, <laughs> you know, you can. But for me personally, what that meant to me was that I can I can feel and I can think two different things, what, regardless of what it is, and still be successful in my own right. Like I don't have, I'm not going to fail at something because I'm not enough of a badass or I'm too much of a badass or I'm too, I'm have too big of a heart or I have too little of a heart. Like you're not going to fail if you have a little bit of both, you know, it's okay to. And I think for me personally, I have the biggest heart ever. And then there's days when I just want to throw everything out the window. Like I hate it all, you know, and I'm like, screw all this and all these people and all these things and blah, blah, blah. And then the next day I'm like, oh my God, but I love them. (laughs) (laughs) But I want them all here. And we just like have a big, like hold hands in a circle and like hug each other. Like literally (laughs) that's how I am. And I think that that is a, I don't want to categorize myself and shove myself into something, but for the most part, that is something that I think that it's okay to feel that you can be both. It's okay. We don't have to be working for a nonprofit and giving back to the church and taking, you know, escapades in silence across the world and still not want to crush your business and live in a high rise in New York City and but you know, like you can you can want both. It's, you can want both things. It's amen. like the classic Brene Brown thing, right? Like you can be you can have multiple passions. Like you can. It does not mean you're failing. It doesn't mean that you're not. It's focused. actually, I think it's the epitome of health and balance and optimum potential is to be able to be all of it. Um, exactly. And yes. so often we see the badass, the badass who has achieved and succeeded and have done has done something extraordinary, an extraordinary mm-hmm. feat. And they don't have any friends and they're all alone because they sacrificed friends and relationships for that one thing. And that's cool, but wouldn't it be so much better if you could have it all friends, relationships, and be that badass? That's, that's what I'm signed up for. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, dude. And, and seriously though. And I think that's where this whole vulnerability thing comes in. You know, it's a, that word's thrown around in society right now. Like yeah. be vulnerable and yeah, I think it's great. We should be vulnerable. Everybody should be vulnerable. But what does that even mean? Right. And to me, that means figuring out that exact thing that we just talked about. How you can be a little bit of both 
and be okay with owning that statement. It's like your elevator pitch. Why can you be a little bit of both? Like, why can you personally, like, what are your areas that you're a little bit of both, bit of both? So like, let's be honest here. Nobody is one thing and one thing only. Like you have the biggest heart and like, that's it period. <laughs> you know, like everybody's got some grit. Yep, you got Everybody the biggest heart and you also get trampled on because yeah. that's kind of this, the, on the other side of the badass, that's the stereotypical, you have a big heart. And exactly. Yeah. You don't want to get trampled on either. No. I mean, cause you will. And yeah. that's the thing is if you don't learn how to stick up for yourself, if you don't learn how to say what's on your mind and be okay with sitting in your shit and being pissed, you know, from time to time, it's like, that is how, like, honestly, that's how shit gets done is when you know what that barrier is between the two of those mm-hmm. and you know how to walk that line and you know how to be okay and owning being both. So you know? we're jumping around a little bit, but I think it's fine. Yeah. You? <laughs> um, yes, we are. Okay. Story I, of my life. I like it. And I want to get into this with you because, um, sort of in the same vein, you said something, another Instagram post that I love. Um, A big part of this podcast is highlighting people who have had the courage to, you know, follow a dream in their heart or a vision or a goal and, you know, how they've realized it and what they overcame and obstacles and who they've become through that process. Um, I also obviously became an Olympian and I've been in a four year transition still in it. And Mm -hmm. I now for the first time, I I was so clear on who I was and what I wanted at seven years old. I literally said, I want to be an Olympian at seven and my life from seven until when I retired at 32 was, it was a very straight and narrow path. I knew what I was doing. I knew how to train. I knew the contests I would go to, you know, business stuff. It was all very regimented. And then I retired. And this concept of uh, following your heart can really piss people off. Like, Mm. oh, just follow your heart. Because when you don't know what is in your heart, I think that can be a really upsetting statement to people. Like, oh, and it can feel very mushy and wishy-washy and almost esoteric. And you said something in a post, let's kind of step away from this idea of following your heart and instead live by do what you feel. Yeah. So this is interesting because, again, you know, you and I both, our biggest area to relate to is sport. And when you think about like comparing things in life, I usually go to sports. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, that reminds me of this. Or, oh yeah, that yeah, reminds me of Yeah, because it's so this. tangible in sport. Exactly. And I don't know about you, but I was a huge feeling athlete. Yeah. Like I didn't know times. I didn't know standards. I didn't know that many specifics of my opponent's performance situations. Like I didn't care. I really didn't like, I had no idea about anything logistical splits, times, whatever I went by the way I felt every single thing was the way I felt. If it took me a 500 to warm up or if it took me a 2000 to warm up for a meet, I went with what I felt. 
And so going from that into life, I started to just use my brain so much. And everyone kept saying, you're so good at this. You should do this. You're so good at Why don't you just think about it more? Just give yourself time to think. You're like, man, I don't need to think anymore. <laughs> I'm I'm already overthinking the shit out of this stuff. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just like, damn it. Like, I literally cannot think anymore because what I'm doing right now is is exactly what caused me to not perform well in my sport. Overthinking. Overthinking. Yeah. And just overanalyzing every single thing. And when I just relied on my feel... It worked for me. It doesn't work for every single person. You know, my brother needed splits and logistics and and he, granted, when he did start to compete well, he did go with how he felt, you know, but same with, with life. I think that we tap into our brains a lot right now. We tap into perception of what everything is, how you look to others, how your job looks, how your career looks, how your sport looks, right? Especially how whatever in our you're doing looks in the U.S. Yeah, exactly. We forget that our minds and our bodies are connected. Our bodies tell us a lot of what's going on. They tell us a lot. You know, you break out because of stress, your stomach hurts because of this, you know, your gut is tied to this, this is tied to this. Like, and so really understanding, like, how do I feel right now? And what is that telling me? That takes a lot of buy-in a lot. And it, it really takes a lot of self-discipline instead of just letting your brain run that and say, nope, that's dumb. I'm not going to go with how I feel. I don't even know how I feel. I don't, I have no idea how I feel. It's like, when was the last time you really tapped into your body and what it's telling you? Mm-hmm. You know, cause I think that learning what's connected to what is huge, you know? Well, it, it, um, that's so powerful because it's kind of similar to what we were just talking about around being a badass or having a big heart. It's the integration of the mind with the body of the mind with the heart And we shouldn't just use one or the other, but it's the integration of both that helps us create human potential, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And I mean, injuries are a huge thing. Huge. It's, you know, you really have to, like your body is hurting. And so it's learning how to to feel that, but then control your thoughts around that injury. And control, you know, being able to be breathe through it and understand that that is something that is connected to your mind. Your mind will go where it goes. You know, if you're in pain, if you're struggling, your mind will be like, oh, damn it. You know, and, and saying the other way around. I know I've created injuries with my mind before. <laughs> I think this hurts. Oh, my God. Ah, you know, and so it's it's all connected and really tapping in to go with how you feel. What do you feel in that moment? That's a body example, a, a feeling example that I personally use is just allowing myself to do what I want, not what has to be done mm. according to my thought of should, should woulds, yeah, should. have to. I have yeah. to do this. I should do this. But exactly. What does my body want? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even if it's just not involving your your physical body, like doing what you feel is right 
and trusting your intuition, which is a very difficult thing for a human sometimes, you know, we, we don't know what our intuition is. I don't know. I don't have a gut feeling I've heard, or I don't know. I'm not sure. You know, I don't know what that feeling is. I'm not sure. And that's okay. But it's also just tapping into maybe you do have one. Maybe you're telling your mind is telling yourself that you don't. And so what is it that you really feel? And just go with whatever that is in that moment. Mm-hmm. And that's so meaningful to me because when I stopped competing, I felt so similar to what you talk about. I felt so lost for the first time in my life. I don't know what I want. I don't know where I'm going. Um, and I can relate to those people who are like, screw this, follow your heart thing. Like, Mm -hmm. because sometimes, yeah, we don't know, we don't have a burning passion, but the way we start is by, I think what you're talking about start doing things that make you feel good. Then start Mm -hmm. doing things that you're curious about and look into those things. You're curious for a reason. They make you feel good for a reason. Um, But then on the flip side, what about, I think sometimes we are attracted to things that we are already out of balance from. Do you know what I'm saying? Like sometimes we're drawn to the very thing that we're out of balance in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this goes into the pain thing that we talked, we spoke about. Let's talk about it. Yeah. This is a big topic. So this does flip the coin with what we just talked about, because sometimes when you go with what you feel, that's pain because that pain is associated with success. Mm-hmm. So you only know success through a lens of pain. And this topic hits home for me like hugely, largely hits home because I went through a lot of pain um, in my career. And it was really difficult for me. Um, you know, I, I can definitely say I understood I can, I can understand the meaning of emotional and verbal abuse and associating those things with success as well, not mm-hmm. just bodily pain with success, but associating painful times, like really things have to be really hard and really, really difficult, you know, to, to be successful that that gets addicting. Absolutely. You know, we get addicted to pain and I think you know, there's some examples too, like you can think of authors or, uh, you know, people that sit there forever and ever. And it's so painful to write a book, right? Like I have some friends that have written books and it's like, oh my God, they, they sit there and they suffer. They suffer, they suffer, they suffer. Well, and they perfect example, associate it. I got to talk, sit down with Brett Denon, who's a singer. Mm-hmm. Do you know who he is? Yeah. He's a singer songwriter. And, um, it's true besides athletes, artists or musicians, any creative type people are known for in order to have your best work, you have to be in a state of depression or a place with demons. And that's when your best work comes out. And that's sort of kind of along what you're saying, right? Like you have to be in pain to succeed. I do think, you know, from pain comes success. You make shit happen. You put your hard work in, you 
grind, 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 grind. Well, right. Like you step outside of your comfort zone. You're not just like cruising down the road, going through the motions. You're actually stepping outside of your comfort zone and pushing yourself to be more than you currently are, which involves some pain, right? Right. You put all your trust into suffering. You know, you put all your trust into that and all of your marbles in that basket of if I, if I can make it so hard, I know that that diamond will form. I know that if I really put so much into this, way more than anything, but emotionally, right? Emotional pain. Like if I tell myself all the negative things I possibly can, and if I beat myself up emotionally and say that it's not enough, it's not enough, it's not enough. I want the darkness. I want the darkness. It's just so fun. It's so fun to suffer. It, it become, and this sounds crazy, but we all do it subconsciously, regardless of what it is. Yes. The harder something is, the better the results. That's, that's a mindset. I had that. I had that mindset for so long that like the harder I can make things, the better I'll be. You know, the harder I can work at this, the more that I grind, the more that I suffer, the more that I get another degree and then I'll get another degree and then I'll do this because the more that I can distract myself with all of this suffering, things mm-hmm. I don't even want to do because I'm doing it because I'm supposed to and should and have to and ought mm-hmm. to instead of like, I really feel like doing this right now. Right. You know, yeah, we're not going to feel like doing everything all the time, but I thought that that pain would equal success. And what it did was just narrowed my mind. You know, there's so there, like my best friend is a, an amazing athlete and she does all those crazy awesome races right and her and I have this conversation all the time you know she does these 24 hour 48 hour like overnight trudging through two degrees in the snow and the way and she loves it but she's also very aware of understanding that when you're finished with that you can be in a creative happy state you don't have to find the next pain right away You can savor those things and understand what you learned in those processes because you learn a lot through that. Yeah. You learn a lot through being in pain. Don't get me wrong. Like that's where what is the fine line? So the fine line is know when to turn it off. Exactly. Like we were talking about earlier. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. A part of this path is um overcoming fears and um, learning how to overcome obstacles. Like another, I'm just going to keep on bringing up your social media, but you have something in rise athletes, um, a post obstacles do not block the path. They are the path. So Mm -hmm. I agree with that. I feel like where you have fear, that's something to look into where you have obstacles. That's something to look into. That means addressing fear, pain, Um, so how do you not get addicted to it when it is the path? Yeah, such a good point. And that's exactly, I think that is the life process. Like that's that journey for me personally Yeah, is knowing that I am going to go full on into difficult situations. I mean, that's what I signed up for my whole life. I've signed up for that. I've signed up for it in sport. I've signed up for it being an entrepreneur, starting businesses. Like I have signed up to get my ass kicked, right? Like you sign up to get your ass kicked. You sign up to fail. You sign up to be in really difficult, painful situations, period. And so knowing that it doesn't define you to do that, that's where the work is done. 
So you signed yourself up for overcoming fear to achieve success. Yeah. And so I think the, the fine line that we're talking about. Overcoming pain to achieve success. Yeah. And the fine line is when you're, when you're overcoming pain and when you're going through this painful experience, whatever it is in your life, if you define yourself by, by the fact that you've overcome it, just so that you can fist pump on the other end of it, right? Like I overcame this obstacle. Woo. Now I'm worthy Mm -hmm. because I did it. It's Mm -hmm. this whole self-fulfilling. Like I did it. It's me. Look at me. I did it. Right. And now I'm worthy. And now I'm I'm worthy. worthy Part is pretty big too. Yes. So that is the addiction. Yes. That if you get addicted to to your self-definition through that, then you're addicted to that pain. If you know that that doesn't define you, and that's not the only way you're successful is if, if, if you overcome pain, then if you already have a self-identity before you even go into this painful situation, then that's where you, that's the ideal sitting point. That's the sustainable factor. Exactly. Yeah. That's so a sustainable factor. Unsustainable is defining yourself on the amount of pain you can endure in order to come out on the other end and mm-hmm. becoming addicted to that. And then... The other side of the coin is knowing who you are, no matter what, you are worthy, Mm -hmm. you are enough, and you're going to choose to do these things anyway because you know it's growth, but you're not Mm going to define yourself based on that. So like using a physical example, if someone's going to climb Mount Everest, you know, and and they don't make it, they could look at that as not overcoming pain. I couldn't overcome the pain. can't believe I did that, you know, blah, blah, blah. Now, obviously, if there's an emergency, that's a different situation. However, if they do make it just to overcome the pain, and then it's this whole like, oh, my God, I did this. Think society looks at these people, right? And I do it. We all, oh, my God, look at that. They're a champion. You know, like they could push through it and, and this and that. And sure. Fantastic. But if that person thinks that they're only worthy because they've done that, then that's, that's the addiction. That's where you don't right. want to sit. They're going to sign themselves when you have identity. up for a lifetime yes. of beating themselves up and going into adrenal fatigue. And, and, and you think about it this way too. What are you chasing? If, if you're chasing, you chasing these feats, that's for sure thrill and excitement. And I hope that every human being chases whatever they want to and makes it the damn best they can ever do it for sure. I always wish that. Yes. But if you're doing it for a reason, because you don't know yourself and you don't know that you're worthy without that accomplishment. Yes. Then that's a problem. And that's where elite athletes can benefit the most, right? Is finding this identity before they, it gets too far before they don't know who they are because they've only known who they are within that amount of success over the hardest pain they can push themselves through. Right. Yeah. And I know for me personally, it shows up, it showed up when I was finished in so many different ways. I mean, it showed up in relationships. You know, I, I wanted thing. I was like, God, we're not fighting. We're just like, be fighting. Like, I'm, you know, like, why isn't this harder? Mm. <laughs> like this, you know, or right. you know, it just, it was just, yeah. It, and everything needed you know, to be hard in order for it to be yeah. real or good. 
Yeah. And I mean, granted, I went through a very difficult relationship in college and everything was hard. It was hard. And I went through a difficult coaching relationship for a long time. And that was really hard. You know, like I, I really went through a lot of pain in those. And so I associated everything that I ever did with, it's supposed to be that hard. Caroline, take us through your Olympic experience. You know, the good, the bad, the highs, the lows. What was it like for you? Yeah, well, Beijing was, first of all, a total culture shock for me, but in a great way because, you know, we had expectations going into it um, and, you know, and it was the process leading up to it. So you make, in swimming in America, Olympic trials are like five weeks before the Olympics, five or six weeks, maybe five now, but so you make the team and then, you know, you prep this whole time to make the team, which is so insanely difficult. USA is, is one of the, I mean, it's so competitive, right? So, And talk you, about that because I think what most people don't realize is countries are, are only given a certain amount of spots regardless if they have the deepest field or not. Yeah, so good question because there's two spots and four in the relay so two slots in every race yeah and there's like 50 people per event and then there's sometimes more but there's three different ways to make it you know so you got prelims and then if you make top 16 then you swim in semifinals that night and then if you make top eight then you have a whole nother day and the following night you swim again and then you have two or four so that make it so it's really gnarly and like honestly sometimes you have the top eight people at the olympic trials that could medal at the olympics like that's that's how fast you know they could get gold they could all get gold you know you go to the olympic games and like silver and, and this is no offense to any other country whatsoever it's just that like that's how fast the heats are you know so you get eight people that go let's say i don't know a minute in some random race i'm just gonna throw something out there you have a minute and then at the Olympics, gold is literally a minute and silver is one oh one. So it's like, yeah, like you'd have that many people that could make it. So every athlete is damn good, you know, and so you're you're up against the best in the world right there. And so when you make it So making then, the Olympic team is harder than actually the actual competition at the Olympics. I think you so because of pressure. Most of your the top competitors in the world. Totally. And the amount of pressure and expectation you have on yourself to make it is this feeling of like, I've got to prove myself, right? I've got to prove myself. I've got to prove myself. And you can push your way through that. And not that the Olympics are not as intense because they are. However, it's just a different feeling because you're like, I'm here. Like, yeah. Right. Like, Like, I'm going to just crush it. Nothing to lose at this point. Right. Yeah. And like, you're nervous and you're ready to crush it, but you're also like, yeah. It's different because you've made it, right? Yes. Like you've yes. quote unquote proved. Um, and it's more of like a team thing at that point. Like you're coming together for USA and you're doing your thing. And so you make the team and then they take you to training camp. So they, you know, they onboard everybody. You get all this cool swag and, you know, at training camp. And, and we went to Palo Alto. So we were there for four weeks almost, three and a half weeks. And then so you, you spike up in training because you've tapered for the trials, full taper to make it. So they spike you back up in training. 
for it depends on your event, right? So, I mean, everybody's different. So you kind of get split up into groups of different coaches and you can move things around and et cetera, according to what you need. And then, so I spiked up for like a week cause I'm a big taper swimmer. So mm-hmm. I, I do well on a second taper. So, which means, you know, I just do well rested pretty much. Like I recover well, uh, and I needed that. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. do well when I'm broken down or, you know, I don't need to train a lot to make something happen, which it's a blessing and a curse. Cause if you, if you can get in your head about it too, you know, when you're yeah. really tired and overtrained and stuff. So anyway, I spiked up for a week, super intense. And then I, I did a week of moderate and then I came back down for about two weeks again. Cause for the 200, you can taper quite a bit. Um, and that was the race that I made it in. So then we went to Singapore for 10 days. And then, so that's to acclimate to the time and it's beautiful country there. Like everything is so clean and it was just beautiful, like green and monkeys like slinging in trees. And I mean, it was just amazing. We stayed in the Shangri-La, which was gorgeous. And, uh, you can't chew gum there. I quickly learned that is against the law. So I was almost arrested for chewing gum in the (laughs) lobby of the Shangri-La because I like gum and I was grabbed by the arms and the coaches were like, Whoa, she's fine. She had no idea. (laughs) I was like, Oh my God, I forgot. Wow. So yeah. And you know, you get time when you're in Singapore to do your thing and walk around and explore the city, but it's pretty strict. You know, you, we have a lot of, we had a couple security guards with us. Um, you don't really walk a lot cause you're trying to save your legs and trying to rest and uh, you know, obviously they want to keep you safe. So you have specifics that you have to show up at and do. And, um, throughout this whole time, like everyone's still getting drug tested and everybody's still getting, uh, you know, maximum recovery and massage and training. And like, you're still doing stuff, you know, like you're mm-hmm. not just chilling in the Shangri-La. So right. it's like, you're, you're definitely in it and you're getting prepared. And so, then we went to Beijing, and so we go from the Shangri-La to the Olympic Village, which at that time, the Olympic Village had a bunch of, like, uh-oh, be careful, don't drink the water, you know, there's a lot of smog, we're wearing face masks, you know, just to mm-hmm. make sure that, breathing masks, to make sure we're not getting bad air. Uh, it was a beautiful village, my goodness, so beautiful. I think USA had, like, five high-rises out of everybody's, so we had a, a big contingency of athletes, and... Um, you know, they're like dorms. So you stay in dorms and pretty much, and there's a gigantic eating cafeteria. You know, there's food from every country. It's huge. It's like two football fields big or something, you know, it's crazy. And, um, highlight of my eating experience was I'm in line and, you know, I'm like with one of my friends and we sit down and we're at this giant long table and we had, we're eating separately from everybody else at this time. Cause I think we had we we're just hungry and wanted to go get a snack. Like literally all you do is eat in the Olympic village. I'm not kidding. Like you just eat. So it's true because I'm watching know. everyone's Instagrams right now, Instagram stories. And that's all people are Instagramming around is like going and eating at McDonald's. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. And so we, yeah, there's a McDonald's in there. And so we weren't allowed to have that until afterwards, but yeah. so I, yeah, I sit down and I look over to my left and there's this just, well, two amazing moments. One is there was this like marathon runner and I don't re- recall which African country he was from, but he was like the sweetest person in the entire world. And 
sat down with like three trays of food and he's probably like 80 pounds, like this little light runner, you know, and I'm just cracking up because he's like probably the fastest runner in the world, you know, and I'm sitting here like, I'm just like, you know, these people are so they're specimens and he's just chowing food and we're just having this conversation with them. And, you know, it's just so neat. And then that same moment at the time, I had no idea who this person was. I mean, this is 2008. Usain Bolt sits across from my friend and I, and we're just like having this conversation, yada, yada, he's speaking all Jamaican or whatever. And, <laughs> and then we get up and literally that night, he, that was when he did that famous like world record, right. his, very, his very first one. And we were like, wait, dude, we sat across from him. You know, <laughs> so it's like you get starstruck by other people too. And I'm not a starstruck person. So it was cool to be able to experience like real conversations with athletes that are just human beings, like everybody else sitting there and, you know, chowing down on McDonald's fries or something like the night before he sets a world record or whatever he was doing. And (laughs) not that I don't think he was doing that, but I, you know what I mean? Like everyone's a human. And so it was, it was a really cool experience. Um, so that's like all the stuff surrounding it, but as far as competing and competition goes, you know, it's a highly stressful environment. Everybody's ready and, and very intense, right? Like the air in the village is just intense. And um, you know, they bust you to and from all of the facilities and stuff. So we are at the water cube and they bust you there. You don't really see much of China at all. You just see the village and the water cube. And we saw the bird's nest. But other than that, it's a pretty basic situation, like to and from focus, 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 right. recover, eat, sleep. Yep. Yeah. Um, but it was incredible. You know, we, we just really came together as a team and it was some of the best performances swimming's ever seen too, just with some of the racing that went down. And, um, you know, that was, it was cool because all the NBA dudes from USA and basketball team came to watch us swim a couple of times and sat in the stands, you know, so you're like That's chilling next awesome. to LeBron James and like Kobe and all them, you know, and Chris Paul and like, it was really super cool. And, Wait, Again, did that help you? Were you like, oh my gosh, I have to, I have to have the race of my life because LeBron's watching today. <laughs> no, well, the funny thing is, is they are like so fascinated with swimming. They're like, dude, I can't even float. Like, I don't know how you guys do this, you know? And they're just cracking us up the whole time because they're, they're sitting there and we're sitting here like, you know, we can't even throw a ball to save our lives. We're water athletes and they're, they're over there like, I can't eat, like, I, I don't know how to swim at all. Like I can't even swim one right, bit. Right. Cause and those so, guys are just pure muscle. They probably don't float. They probably yeah. think. <laughs> it was just so cool to see people respect the hell out of it and to, for us to respect the hell out of them. And you know, it was just, it was like I said, I'm not a starstruck person, but it was really neat to see Americans coming together to support one another. Yeah. And they were just, I mean, their jaws are dropped. Like literally it was adorable. Like they're standing up clapping hard and like screaming. And like, it was just, it was so cool to see that because it was a genuine effort. It wasn't just like, Hey, we have to be here. It was like a genuine effort that they wanted to come. And they came to like three different sessions, like because they wanted to. And so it was really that. cool. I love that. Yeah. So it was a cool experience. And as far as meddling and just my preparation and everything, I, I'll be honest with you, Gretchen, I, it's like total flow. I don't remember a thing, honestly. Mm-hmm. And I'm being dead serious. Like you get to this point where you're just in autopilot and you have prepared so well and visualized leading up to it so much and created so much space around 
holding this feeling of what you want that you just do it. And I think that, you know, it's like we spoke about the trick about sports psychology or any sort of psychology around athletics is, you know, you're supposed to tap in, right. And tap in and focus and all that, but that's actually turning it off because Mm -hmm. if you can focus on the right things and get into your state of just being and just feeling, then you don't really remember your best performances. Mm-hmm. You do, but you don't, right? Like mm-hmm. you don't remember every technical detail of your best performance. I can guarantee it. Like you're probably like, holy shit, that was cool here and there. But like, I mean, I just showed up and I mean, that was just, whoa, like, wow. And so what were the things you said, um, if you can focus on the right things, were there specific things that you focused on and what were those for me it was the feeling of my breath and my body so mm-hmm. my mind and my body combining uh I mean I vividly remember being in the ready room and I hate ready rooms hate it I, I like to go into the last second um but they call you, you you have to be in there at the Olympics at a certain time because they have to check everybody in and make sure that you're all there and you have your bib and everything and so it's kind of like a a feeling where I was just sitting there and I just remember, I know the difference between being jittery, which is too much, right? Like, and just being too relaxed, right? Like there is an in between. And I remember I had a moment of like, I couldn't control myself. Like I was over in the corner and I'm like very, I, I was always the, joking, the laughing matter, I guess you could call it of the swimming world. Cause they were like, does she ever get nervous? She's like laughing and having fun. And like, you know, Allison Schmidt and I are like goofing off in the corner kind of thing always before races. Cause that was how I prepared. Right. That was by listening up and having fun. Exactly. But I knew how to switch it quickly. Like that was one of my gifts I felt as an athlete. And you know, is I can put those blinders on real quick. Right. So like I can, snap like at the blow of a whistle or you know a snap of fingers I can put them on and get into my zone and I remember being in the corner in that ready room and I felt really jittery and I was like okay where do you go right like what where do you go so for me in swimming what I did was I I had this analogy of horse blinders and that was told to me when I was a little girl and it was something that I always kept close to me and so what I did to mimic that was I would put my goggles on And so I put my goggles on to pretend like the, you know, that there was nothing else that I could see Mm. or that I was thinking about except for just how do I calm my body in this moment? And for me, it's like deep breaths and I would squat down on the floor, like just squatty potty position and just like chill for a second, like hands on elbows on my knees, head in my hands and just breathe. And then I could stand back up and I was fine. But it was like just learning how to tap in to turn it off because I needed to turn off that like, holy shit, I'm at the Olympics. I'm shaking. I'm nervous. Like, and I've, I'm ready, but I'm scared and I'm ready, but I'm scared. And am I prepared? Am I not? What if this, you know, and like all those thoughts come in at like rapid fire within like 10 seconds, right? Like they can come in quickly, but it's like, how can I turn them off? And that's what, I could tap into is really turning that that off. And Breathing, goggles, yes. horse horse blinders, and I know that squat position. There's something <laughs> about that position too that helps. <laughs> 
for some reason, if I can make myself small to become big again, mm-hmm. it was like, that was what I needed to do was like, I needed to make myself small in order to like roly poly myself back into me because all my energy was being scattered everywhere. And so it's like, how do I roly poly back into myself before I can stand up and be big again? And that was something that I really did well. It's kind of like the fetal position, right? Like, when you're sick or when you feel like crap, you go over and a lot of people just lay down like a ball because there's something about getting back to that innate, like, I just need to like reel it in, <laughs> right? Like, I, I mean, reel it in. And yes. so I think that's, that was an important thing for me. Well, and it's, it's such a good point because, um, I think you really nailed it with, you can either be too jittery, too excited and a little spun out or you're too relaxed. You're, you're, you don't have the adrenaline that you need in order to perform at your best and Mm -hmm. the best competitors. And I think the people who are able to really succeed in life in general are those who are able to adjust that energy state to that optimal place. Exactly. And that you're, you're nailing it with the optimal nailing it. And I think that again, it can be something that's overwhelming. I mean, you're at the top of the world and you have all this pressure on you and you can choose to say, this is an eight lane pool that I've done umpteen times in my life. And it's the same damn thing, same damn race, same exact distance. Or you can say, this is totally different and I'm screwed because I've never done this before. Hmm. And so, you know, that, that is a big thing that I learned was it is the same pool. (laughs) It's the same distance. Yes. The environment is different, but feed off of that. Don't use that as like, Oh my God, I can't because of this. Right. Use it, you know, use it, use it better than you've ever done before. Yeah. And it's just getting back to that, to your roots with that. And I think that we all can take some advice from that just even in daily life, like public speaking or job interviews or, uh, you know, you name it, driver's license tests. I remember when my little brother took it, he was like, oh my God, I don't like, this is a different person and a different, and I'm like, no, but it's the same place that you practice. It's the same exact routine, you know, and he's a lot younger than me. And so when I was walking him through it, it was like, those are things that you can view it as now the pressure's on, or you can view it as I've practiced for this. I have prepared. Now, how do I just listen to the instructions and go through it the way that I know how Mm -hmm. instead of overcomplicating it, that it has to be something insanely different for you to succeed. Mm -hmm. So true. So true. Yeah. So were you able to enjoy winning that bronze mm. medal and being an Olympian? Yes and no. Um, and full disclosure, it was one of the, this is something I always speak on. And before I even go into any of this, it's, I take zero pity on anything. Like I, I never look for people in my life to be like, I'm so sorry. Right. Like there's nothing worse than hearing that in my opinion, for me, it's more the feeling of when I speak about that being the hardest time in my life and the most beautiful time in my life, it's just that things can actually be both of those. Mm. And 
going back to that concept of it doesn't have to be one thing or the other, it was the hardest time of my life. Um, and the best time, but the hardest time because I didn't know what to do after. <laughs> and I was already, it was beautiful, but I was going through a lot emotionally in my relationships. Um, and I realized after the fact of the Olympics, why it was so hard. And, you know, it was, it was a very trying time for me with different emotional and verbal styles of, um, abuse that I had gone through. And so I think that I was going through them there as well. Mm. I know I was, um, and that's okay. It just didn't sit well with me afterward when I started to recognize that that was a reason why I felt unfulfilled. I was attaching the best thing in my life with pain. And it was something that I didn't realize for years could be okay and be both. It was something that I thought had to be this persona of like, oh my God, the Olympics is the most amazing experience and like nothing went wrong and it was rainbows and butterflies and unicorns. And speaking about the fact that it was hard as shit and that I was in a little bit of a depressed state at the time, believe it or not. Oh, really? Yes. Because of I your, because the environment that you were in. Yes. The training yeah. environment. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know that at the time, really. I just, because you, <laughs> what I just said, I guess makes sense. You can really just tap into like, I'm getting the task at hand. I'm here for America and I'm here for the task at hand and I have amazing friends here and support and I'm representing what's something that I've wanted to do forever. And right. Your laser focused help you get it done even despite what you were going through that no yeah. one really knew about. Yeah. And you know what? I'm not even going to sugarcoat it. I'll, you know, cause right now I can even feel myself doing what I've always done, which is it was okay. I was right. fine. Right. Right. But I wasn't fine. I mean, I, I spent half of Olympic trials not even knowing if I wanted to go to the pool, you know, and, and same with the Olympics. And I, I don't cry often, but I spent a lot of time crying there. Um, and it was hard for me. And after I finished the Olympics, I went home to Gainesville miserable. Hmm. And I was here. You had just won a bronze medal in the Olympics. You were the best in the world and Mm -hmm. you go home miserable, miserable. And I chose to be that. Sure. We all choose that. But I, you know, I went home and I sat on my floor and we're, you know, jet lagged. It's like midnight there when we finally got back. And I, you know, get to Gainesville and the whole team had thrown a party. And I went home and sat on my floor and cried. And my two best friends were the only two that knew that I wasn't okay. I just said, I'm going to change. And I never went back to the party. Hmm. I stayed and bawled my eyes out all night. I was wide awake, but just crying. I was like, I just, I, cause you're at, think about it. It's like postpartum. I don't know that cause I haven't had a kid, but apparently all my friends have. And this is, you know, it's like anything that after you go through this entire thing, you're just like, what the hell now? Right. An extreme high back to life. And how do I go through daily life after this experience I just had? Mm -hmm. And then obviously dealing with 
with things that you hadn't dealt with. Yeah. And, and I hadn't dealt with hurts, really intense hurts. I had not. And I had not dealt with the feelings that had come associated with those. I'd pushed them aside to get the task at hand done and to do what I wanted to do. Now, while I believe in that in life, you know, you've got to put your head down and get your shit done. I get it. And I'm an advocate for that. But I'm also a huge advocate for handling your shit and sitting in it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because if you don't, then you are going to distract yourself forever and create reasons why you don't need to deal with it. And trust me, it backfires. I did it. I literally spent six months after the Olympic Games going to Vegas every other weekend. And I partied and I ignored everything. And I was never this kind of person, honestly. Like, I would go out on the weekends in college, but I went to bed at 8 o'clock every night. I was, like, a great student. I, would, I was, like, a nerd. Like, literally, my roommates are watching Grey's Anatomy and I'm in bed because it was, like, 9. And, I, and so I was in this, like, phase of, like, I'm going to go crazy. And so I, I went wild. And it was fun to celebrate, but I was so lost. Entirely yeah, because you weren't lost. doing it out of celebration and happiness. You were doing it out of depression. Avoidance. Avoidance. Yeah. yeah total avoidance. avoidance, total depression. So I went and I went through all that. And I started seeing, uh, actually, I saw my counselor, our guidance counselor at Florida, uh, Tim Eight, who was fantastic. And I would sit in his office and cry my eyes off for hours. And he would talk me through things like literally he saved my life on multiple occasions. And one of those being right after Beijing, when I sat on my bathroom floor in China and called him at three in the morning, China time, which is like 2 PM or something in America. And I was like, I don't want to be here anymore. And he was like, where? And I was like, this planet. Hmm. And like that freaked him out. And he was like, okay, like, you know, let's talk through this. And I'm like, I'm bawling. And I was just, I was so hurt by so many things that I had never dealt with, you know, with uh, surrounding some abuse and things like that. And I had no idea. And so anyway, I, I started to realize all these patterns of myself that I was avoiding. I was avoiding, 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 because I've always done that to get the job done. Mm-hmm. And I cried to him and I cried to him and I cried to him and he kept telling me these things that I couldn't see at the time, but I started to see like even a couple of years ago and he was like, you will thank yourself one day for this because this is so powerful that you're releasing all this and yes. that you're letting this out to people that you trust. And so I ended up leaving Florida because we couldn't train. I, I started, I went back to swim. I had no idea what I was going to do with myself. January, 2009, six months later, I went, I tried to swim again. I was like, I'm not done. I'm, I'm still good. But right. you know, I, Did, I you felt like, to, like dated again to see if I wanted to be with it. Right. Like, right. like, like I don't know. You can still yeah. do more in the sport. So why not? Yeah. And, and you know, there was a part of me that it was always like, I can be more, I yeah. can be more than this. Like I can be more than this. And so I went to Fullerton Aquatic Club out in California with like six or seven other pro swimmers. And there were two different pro teams. One was in the East Coast, one was in the West Coast. And so I went to Fullerton uh, and I started to train with um, Sean Hutchison and John Urbanchek um, and a team of like eight other people. And it was, you know, post-collegiate environment. Um, we did very specific training and I lived with my best friend, Katie Hoff, who, you know, has been through and through one of my best friends was in her wedding and, you know, she's just an amazing human. Um, and 
we were both going through a hard time. She was kind of doing some of the post Olympic struggle as well. And so was I, and so we really helped each other with that, you know, obviously, but I was still just, nothing was fulfilled. And that was a difficult environment as well. Um, there, it was good, but it was very difficult for just a lot of reasons. Um, and I just didn't feel right with continuing to swim. You know, I swam for like a year and a half. I did well, you know, I think I was like third at world champ trials. I almost missed, I missed making the team there. I missed, you know, but I just wasn't, I wasn't. You mean you just missed making the the next Olympic team? Uh, No, actually the world championship team. I retired right before the next Olympics. I retired like January, 2011. Okay. And I remember I just didn't have it anymore. And it wasn't this feeling of like, I can push through it. I know I can do it. It was just like, I'm good. Like I was just, I was, I was ready for the next step because I knew what it was and what it was, was that I needed to address my shit Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I wanted to move forward with my life. And that was, those were my goals. And I had no idea what that looked like, but I knew that that was what was needed. And I remember they were in Irvine, California nationals, my last meet. I swam the 200 free and I got out of the pool and I, I mean, I did not do well because I was honestly, I was just mentally done. Like I was done and I got out of the pool. I quietly walked over to the warm down pool and I sat on the gutter and I had my head in my hands and I just started weeping. And I remember I was like, I have never been seen crying in a pool. Like Mm -hmm. I'd never cried really at a meet. Like I would cry like in a bathroom maybe like if I didn't do well when I was like 15, but like I didn't really cry like in front of people at meet. Like that just wasn't my, my go-to. And so I remember sitting there and Amanda Beard walks up next to me. She's an awesome person. Amazing. And she, I mean, she's been like five Olympics or something, you know, and so she gets it. She's retired 10 times and come back. So she was (laughs) like, are you, you know, like, let's talk. So we just talked it out and I was like, I'm just, I'm good. I just don't want this anymore, you know, and I just want more out of myself. And I just feel like I'm, I'm complacent right now. Which and is such a like, beautiful moment, but that's also yeah. such a terrifying moment after terrifying. this has been your life for almost your whole life. Absolutely. And so that was when I, you know, I retired swimming and I had been at, at Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising um, for about two years. I was almost done. Um, no, about a year. And then I had to move from Orange County campus to LA's campus. And I was like, okay, this is good timing. I have another year of school. That will be my thing, you know, and I'm going to join a team of highly motivated individuals. So I will go to Lululemon because I had friends that worked there that really wanted me to work there. And I was like, great. They all work out together. I need fitness community. I want to do stuff, blah, blah, blah. Loved it. Started working in Beverly Hills in conjunction with being in fashion school. Um, I was studying swimwear and athletic apparel design, and I loved it. I'm an artist at heart and had a blast. Um, again, avoiding everything. <laughs> and so just still avoiding, still avoiding, just doing whatever. Uh, it was great, though. It was what I needed. I needed a team. I needed new faces, fresh atmosphere. It really helped me realize the importance of of that. Um, and then I finished school and 
I decided that I was going to move to San Diego and work for a startup swimwear and athletic apparel design company that is now Montiel Activewear, which I know that I'm sure people are aware of. Um, and I just was still <laughs> just unhappy. Like I like San Diego, but I'm sitting here and I'm like, what am I doing? I'm just bouncing around trying to find fulfillment and this is not working. Mm. And so I remember I'm sitting in my car at my apartment. I call my mom and I'm just bawling my eyes out. And I'm like, I like literally hate myself. Mm. I'm to the point now where I'm so unhappy. I go, I would go home every day from work, sit in my room and go to bed. Like I'd eat and go to bed and I would like lay in bed. I never wanted to get up. My workouts were stupid. I would like go out for like a two minute run and be like, I'm good. Like I was, I was burnt out, like everything done. And so, and you know, this is a different burnout than now. Like now when people get burnt out with work and life and everything, it's probably from go, go, go social media, et cetera. This was like no social media really yet. Like there's no anything other than like Caroline just doesn't, I'm just not, I'm just not there. Like this, something's not right. Mm-hmm. You know, I shouldn't feel this dark inside. Um, and so my mom was like, do you want to come home? And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> Here I am like stubborn as hell. Like I've made it this far without moving home. Like I'm not moving home. And she was like, I think you should move home and get help. And I was like, the first time in my life, I was like, okay. And she was like, seriously? And I'm like, yes. So I packed up my shit and I moved home. And I shipped my car. I flew home instead of driving. I got home as fast as possible, got my own spot in Louisville, Kentucky, and immediately started therapy and counseling like the next day. And that changed my life. Like I, I mean, (laughs) I know everybody says that it took, don't get me wrong. It took about six months for me not to just scream and yell in therapy (laughs) for the Mm. first six months. But, you know, and it affected every relationship in my life. My mom and I would fight. We wouldn't talk for weeks. My dad and I would fight. We wouldn't talk for weeks. And that just wasn't me. And I was dating an amazing guy at the time. Poor thing. Dear God, how did he deal with me? And I don't know because I maybe didn't tell him, to be honest. Mm. Everything was fine. Like, I was always fine, Caroline. Fine, Caroline. Like, put on a face. You were tough. You were tough. I was tough. Yeah. And so I ended up, you know, seeing my counselor for a long time and she was amazing really changed me for the best um and it made me realize at that those moments that like we as athletes need this we need this identity talk long before this happens Mm -hmm. like I can't stress that enough and I started to talk to my other Olympian friends who had retired and gone through xyz and they're just same thing they're like I'm miserable I don't know why. And I'm like, is this a trend? Like, are we all trying to be cool or is this real? You know? And so it took me a while to figure that out, that it was real. It was a real thing that we didn't really quite establish our identity outside of the pool or outside of sport or whatever for a long time. And so a lot of us were lost chasing achievements like graduate degrees and this and that. And, you know, a lot of people wanted them. Sure. But chasing these other things to make themselves feel worthy versus like, actually knowing that it comes from within. Mm. And I mean, those were dark days. I think I left my apartment when I lived in Louisville in my house, when I had a, a house at, for like, I'm not kidding. Never. 
like, I would like go, I worked, I helped open a showroom Lululemon there too. And I would go to work. It was only open three days a week. I'd literally sack up, go to work, come home and go to bed. I shut everybody out of my life. Mm. I mean, my best friend, Mariah Poliakova now, she was Miller. She was a collegiate swimmer. She like pulled me out and I'm like about to cry right now. Like I, she moved to Kentucky with her fiance because he got the Louisville coaching job in swimming. And I was so deep into that hole. And she was like the only thing that could pull me out of it. And I didn't even talk to her that much about it at mm. all. But there was something about having this like new face and this consistent energy around me that was just so beautiful. And again, best friend been in her wedding, like, you know, and it's just like, it's, you create these friendships through dark times too, which is what I needed at the time. And I think she needed it too. She was new to the city and it was my hometown. And it's a testament to a relationship that has stayed through and through. And it's not just one of those convenient ones at the time to like pull somebody out of something. Right. Like, so that gave me a lot of hope for relationships in my life. And I don't think she knows that (laughs) she does. I tell her, but she probably doesn't know the extent of how much it really did mean to me. Um, and so after several conversations with some mutual friends that had graduated from university of Tennessee in sports psychology, and they were like, you know, young athletes really need this. Like other athletes really need this. Would you be interested in coming to this school and studying this in order to, and working with athletes at the university to create this meaning? And I was like, oh, another degree, Burkle. Like, you know, like, do we need to do this again? You know, because I didn't do anything with my fashion degree yet. And I was like, I don't know. And so I talked it over and I was like, I I want this. I think I want this. And so I was like, why the hell not? I just need to get out of Louisville. At this point, I'm like kind of falling back into the whole, like, maybe this will make me feel worthy. Right. So I go to Tennessee and I sound like such a like nomad right now. I go to Tennessee and I work for the athletic department with the, with the athletes, helping them create identity outside of sport. And I was in grad school for sports psychology. It was the hardest two years of my life. I worked around the clock to like 1130 PM at night. I was up early working out. I, I made a great community there. I did like a ton of random, like they were so adventurous. We did all these adventure races and I just needed to like be free. Right. Like, I'd gone through therapy, I'd done the deep work, and now it was like, let's process it. Mm -hmm. So I literally don't think, I mean, I like uh, worked my ass off there, but I had the most amazing, healthy group of friends. Like I hardly drank, I hardly did anything like that. Like I just did me. Um, And right when I graduated that, Gretchen was when I met you. (laughs) I was like finishing school and I, we went to Mind Body Green and it was like this feeling of, like I'm starting to find my purpose here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that I didn't want to become this like stigma of a psychologist or anything. I just wanted to make a damn difference in people's lives, which everybody says, but I was serious because I had lived it. Right. You had and, been through hell and back. Yeah. And you had an idea how to help others not go through that same experience. Exactly. And that's why we're all here. Mm-hmm. on this planet. And I get very passionate about that because everybody sits around and says, I want to make a difference in people's lives. And I do believe that that is true. And I think that the reason people want to is because they have experiences they want to share and they're not. 
So like the more people can make an impact of that without just talking about themselves and sharing the whole time, but really trying to be a presence so that people can relate. Mm. Um, and that's everything. So it's not taking other people's feelings or emotions, but it's, it's portraying your own so that they can relate. And so Mm. I ended up graduating from Tennessee simultaneously with a conversation with Rebecca Sony, who was one of my best friends that had gone through a lot of the same feelings as I did post athletics. And she had gone to London. Um, my brother Clark was also an Olympian in London, which was all, which was so beautifully difficult to not tell him everything I was going through as he was still competing. Right. But, um, you know, we've talked it all out now and he's just been the most incredible brother in the entire world with it. But I, Rebecca Sony said, Hey, you know, I've been mentoring a few athletes online on Skype and their parents are very interested in me working with them and just helping them develop their confidence. And do you want a few athletes while you transition? And I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> and she was like, so I have these ideas of what I want to do. And I'm like, wait, yes. Like I just did all this. Like, let's do this. Like we're doing this. And she was just, a, she had all these plans and all So we came together and started this business and it was just this like synergy of like, you know, two completely opposite souls, but with the same foundation. Mm. And, you know, she's like logical brain and just so thoughtful and like her composure is so beautiful. She's the eight time medalist in the Olympics. I mean, she's just a phenomenal athlete and I'm, like willing to share and talk everything out and connect and do all that. And she's just like my grounding, you know, and it's just such a beautiful relationship that we have that we've built this upon. And so I got into her eyes because I wanted to make a difference in these youth athletes that, that they can know their identity and have one outside of sport and still be a freaking badass athlete. Mm -hmm. There is a possibility to be both. Yes. It's not just, I have to be a badass athlete, swipe my Amex and call it a life. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, I can have both. I can develop my life outside of sport and still be a badass athlete. And, you know, you see the greatest athletes now talking about this, right? Like Michael. And I mean, he sits there and he talks about his depression too. Like I lived it with the guy. You know, like he was one of my good friends. I saw it the whole time and he saw mine. And it's like just all these things that we don't show and that that aren't there. And it's so beautiful for people to start sharing and connecting because it's not about like, oh, my God, I went through this. I hope you don't. That sucks for you. It's like, hey, I went through this. I'm a resource if you want to talk. Doesn't say I'm not projecting it on you. I'm just letting you all know that it's a serious thing. And, and without what about, connecting to the world, you don't know my story. Right. And what about, it, it's not just the identity, right? It's also when you retire, you lose your family, you lose your community, mm-hmm. you lose the structure that your every single day was based around. I experienced that going from a, a pretty regimented daily and yearly schedule to it's all up in the air now. And that Mm. loss of structure was a big part of the hardest part of my transition as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you nailed it because that is 
my version of success. Like that is what I consider success. Let's you know, it. it, what is it? It's connection and engagement. It's that community. It's creating this value of connecting with others. And that can be like, well, I don't get it. What's connection. Do I just talk about what I do and talk about like why, like this isn't a sob story. We all don't need to feel sorry for each other. And like, I went through this, I went through this, I went like, it's not a comparison of who went through what it's connecting and understanding that you can engage with others and you can really and truly listen and take from what they have and apply those lessons to your life and vice versa. Hmm. That's what we're here on this planet to do. It's not just about figuring your own shit out sitting there independent woman and chest pumping, you know, like fist pumping it out. I get it. That's great. But at some point you've got to look around you and recognize that you have a community of people that support you. And those people want to hear your story. If it's constructive and it's valuable and, and it's done out of love and engagement and connection, then that's everything. Mm -hmm. And one of my best friends, Amelia Boone, she gave me a great tip like uh, a couple of months ago. It's like you have 90 seconds to dwell on something. Like we, we talk about things and sometimes it's like 90 seconds to dwell and bitch. Yes. <laughs> and then it's like, okay, now let's talk further. Like, what does that mean? How can we move forward? That doesn't mean that you're saying it's not important. It's just like, what is it that is going on? What is it? And now we can get into the depth of it. Mm. You know, and so I think that that's where people, including myself, can relate is success is your ability to connect with yourself and others and to do it in a constructive fashion. And that goes for sport, that goes for jobs, that goes for family, relationships, careers, meditation. I mean, that's, that's entire people are like, what do I look for in meditation? And I'm like, in connection. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's not about who does it better, who does what, what steps to follow. There's no outcome. Like you don't need to achieve this goal with meditation, you know? Amen. What would you say to people who are not used to sharing? Um, yes. How I love do you, this. how do you get comfortable doing it in a constructive way? Great, great question. So Rebecca, business partner, one of my most amazing souls and best friends in my life too. She prefers to share personally on a personal level, like in, in quiet or by writing or by yoga, her practice, like she's, which I think everybody has a different way of doing it. I still connect in that way. I'm a very much an introvert as well in that way. However, she Which is ironic that you say that yes. because you do not come across yeah. that way. But I can understand what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, I like shut down hard. Like I go in a cave. But you've done like such intense. a good job of coming out of your shell, even though you are an introvert. Yeah. And I found that if I describe those things, it helps me do them. <laughs> Hold myself accountable. Like if I say, hey, I'm an extrovert, but this is what I do. I'm like, okay, good. I'm holding myself accountable. But Rev is just so carefully put together as a soul. Like she's such a beautiful human and she, she connects with people on a one-on-one -on -one individual level 
And she does a lot of it through writing and through meditation and through her personal practice of what she connects to this planet doing. And hers, she's a big vegan activist, animal activist. Like she, so she connects and her success is by making small gains, I guess you could put it, in her own world. Like that's her connection. So let's say someone's connection is through activism, right? Like Gretchen, you're a great example. You connect to the planet. You connect in that way. That is your version of success. If you never connected or felt that connection or engagement within that community, mm-hmm. even if it's just reading or writing about it, that's your way of connecting to that thought. Because hmm. you are not your thoughts. They come in and out, but how do you connect to them? Yeah. You know, And how do you make meaning out of that? And so I think that that's the key is it doesn't have to be you preaching and holding signs on the street corner. Right. But your personal way of doing it is that, and everybody has their own way. But if you can tap into that way without comparison, which is the hardest thing in our culture now, then that is a big way to connect. Yeah. And, and that, what you're describing right there, that also it's success. And what it feels like to me is when you say it, I'm like, oh, that's fulfillment too. And maybe success is fulfillment. (laughs) Exactly. Yes, Exactly. Exactly. And fulfillment, I mean, that's huge. And the reason why I wasn't fulfilled is because I wasn't connecting with myself. I was mm. literally running so away from yourself. Yeah. Totally disjointed. Didn't have a single ounce of connection whatsoever within myself. So it was, I was disjointed. I didn't have any, I was like a puppet on strings of something else that wasn't me. <laughs> at all. And I think that so many people are going to be able to relate to this idea because I do believe that in life we experience traumas, abuses, circumstances that slowly take us out of alignment within ourselves. And if we don't address them right away, we can become further and further disjointed until we get to a place where we are so disjointed, we can't even operate anymore. So mm-hmm. I love I love you sharing this story with all of us because it's about coming back together in wholeness, right? Yeah, it really is. And a lot of people ask, well, how do I know? They ask me, how do I know when I'm disjointed? Sometimes I don't know. Yeah. And like without overthinking it, the best way that I can personally describe it, and if it resonates with anyone, then it resonates. But if not, it's fine too. But for me, it's when I stop caring. Mm-hmm. And there's a difference between like, I guess, like when you really, everybody cares, but there's a difference between being like, I just don't really care what people think, right? Like there's a difference between that and then like literally not caring if like a building fell over and you just stare at it. Mm-hmm. Like that's when you're just like, I'm so disjointed that like things just, I'm just like, I don't care. And like, there needs to be this element of like, what, like, why, why have you lost that? Are you disjointed and not connected to yourself? You know, like the, the feeling of like running away from something that's disjoint because what you're doing is you're disconnecting with yourself in order to get away from yourself. Mm -hmm. Vacations are great, (laughs) but if you, if you feel disjointed to where you're like, I got to get away, I get, I get, I cannot Like, I just don't care about anything. I'm just, I'm so off the radar. That's when you have to really start to say, okay, like, where can I tap in? Mm -hmm. 
where in, in life am I running from myself and how yeah. do I address it so that I can come back together exactly. again? Well, yeah. thank you so much for sharing your incredible story with us. Um, for any athletes who are listening, who are interested in learning more about Rise Athletes, where can they go and find out more about what you and Rev are doing and yeah, be- become so- a part of it too? Yeah. And that's the great part is we are building a community and it's, it's going to be just awesome. (laughs) I love it. It's rise-athletes.com. You don't even need www. You can just do rise-athletes with an S.com. And then on Instagram, we're at rise athletes, all one word. And we barely tweet (laughs) and Facebook is rise athletes. Yeah. So all of the above and Rebecca and I are individually on Instagram too. And as well as all of our other Olympian mentors, um, there's like 18 of us now and yeah, so there's 18 Olympians who are mentors. Mm-hmm. And then how many athletes do you have right now? We have about 50 plus and we get inquiries every day, which is just super humbling, especially right now during the Olympics. It's fun. And, um, yeah, it's, it's needed now more than ever. I think people are starting to recognize the importance of having parents, you know, of the importance of having their athletes talk to somebody that's been through things and, and go through that with them. So it's the most rewarding experience and yeah, it's just great. <laughs> I would definitely want my kid in that situation, Me you know, too. just to have a, even if it's not an Olympian, just somebody older than them to to talk to and to, to work through things. I wish there was a rise athletes when I was going through all my things. Um, but there is now. Same. So thank <laughs> you for putting it out there for the world because you're going to help make sports a healthier, happier, more whole place. So thank you, yeah. Caroline Burkle. Thank you. This is a blast. That was the art of living extraordinarily defined by Caroline Burkle. If you like what you heard today, please click subscribe. We would love a rating too, and I always love to read your comments. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next time.